Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism, what does not kill me makes me stronger. Hey there, Michael here. I'm really excited to share this special episode with you today. Bob and I had so much to talk about, and he was so gracious with his time that I made this a two-parter. So please enjoy part one of my conversation with Bob Kavner. All right, Bob, thank you so much for joining me on my little podcast here. Really appreciate your time. I've been very excited about the opportunity to have this conversation. You've had an incredible vantage point during your career in the growth of the technology industry, of multimedia, of entertainment. You've been at the intersection of uh, the foundation of many of what we consider the sort of the modern version of those industries across. Uh, you, you were a senior executive at, at AT&T, at CAA, have had a chairman role of a number of different companies, including Earthlink and Pandora, Ticketmaster, Overture. So really, really excited to, to dive in here and start exploring with you. But maybe we could just start. I'd love to I'd love to understand how you got started and how you made your way to, to AT&T and, and what was it about technology that, that attracted you initially? Well, first, Michael, I'm delighted to do this with you. For those listening to this podcast, you should know that I, I've known Michael, not in a deep way, but when he was a, an adolescent, because we lived in the same community and I, I had the pleasure of watching you grow up and being the complete man that you are. So I sit here first with admiration towards you. Thank you, Bob. That means a tremendous amount. And your summary of that you just gave of my career is, a, is imbalanced in that I was not born on third base. I found my way to third base and home, but in my life, uh, I was born in Brooklyn uh, during World War II. My dad was a factory worker. And he was sent during the war out to Long Island to Grumman Aviation, where they were making aircraft for the war. He settled in a brand new town. It used to be potato fields, but it is called Franklin Square uh, out on Long Island, just a little bit over the New York border. This is houses that are on a 40 by 100 lot for $2,500. He bought that house in 19, right before I was born in 1942. I was born in 43. I was raised in this you know, working class community. You know, I went to the you know local public schools, and when it came came time to for me to be a junior, maybe in high school, he said to me, "You want to go to college?" That was a legitimate question. I said, "Yeah, Dad, I'd like to." I was a lacrosse player. I grew up with that Franklin Square area uh, was the center, the two centers of lacrosse in the nation was that part of Long Island and Baltimore. So I. I grew up with lacrosse. I didn't play baseball. I didn't play basketball. I didn't play football. I played lacrosse. And when it was not lacrosse season, I played lacrosse. So I was a very good lacrosse player. And so schools were interested in me. So he said, do you want to go to college? I said, yeah, I want to go to college. 
He said, well, if you go to college, uh, you're going to go to the local college. You know, there's a couple of around you. I said, okay, Dad. He said, and uh, you're going to be an accountant or are you going to be an optometrist? I said, why? He said, well, you know, those, you know, if you go down to Hempstead Avenue, the main street in our town, you know, the optometrist wears a tie and the accountant wears a tie. And if you're going to go to college, you're going to wear a tie. Otherwise, why am I sending you to college? This was the mentality of, of my dad. Very pragmatic. You know, again, he was a working man. So off I went to Adelphi University to play lacrosse and be an accountant. <laughs> my, my, my two destinies. I had really no view of where that was going to take me. I, I just went to college. And you know, a, lot of, a lot of us, you know, 18, 19, go to college to go to college, you know, and I, you know, there was no one whispering in my ear about here's a career track. You know, those were not even concepts. It was, you know, people get jobs. But when I was a senior in college, I was going to say professor, probably an instructor. I said, you know, um, there are some large accounting firms in New York City. And New York City was 30 miles away. I think I was there once or twice. I never was on the other side of the Hudson River. So, you know, that was my world. He said, there's a, there's a guy in one of the accounting firms in New York who I know. And maybe uh, I can get you an interview because none of these firms came to Adelphi to recruit. You know, almost all of the graduates of Adelphi landed up in jobs and in insurance brokerage firms in the neighborhood or become a policeman or a fireman or a teacher. You know, I'm not, I mean, good jobs. But he got me an interview in New York City. And my dad went to the local haberdashery and with me and bought me a suit. I think it was $30. And I put on the suit and went, took the bus to the subway into New York. And, you know, this firm is now PricewaterhouseCoopers and went to the interview. And lo and behold, I got a job there. That was beginning of my breakout. And all of a sudden, you know, in June of 1965, I'm reporting to work at Two Broadway. Others, they hired from really fine universities and fine programs. They sent us away for a month for a training program. And I was in the bottom quartile. They tested us every week. I was in the bottom quartile in all of those tests. because I just wasn't probably emotionally as well as intellectually prepared. Uh, from a substance standpoint, and off I went into being a junior accountant in Coopers. But I loved learning, and I was like a sponge. I, I just, you know, they sent me, there was a, the, to an airline as my first client, and that airline was Pan American World Airways, the American flag carrier. That was the expression, Michael. Isn't that funny? The American flag carrier. Because Pan Am flew the route to other parts of the world throughout, you know, you know, Karachi and, you know, Istanbul and all of these weird places. I just never even heard of some of them. And I would look on the map to see that stuff. And I just, you know, they would, you know, I get an assignment in the first year or two to, you know, audit accounts receivable. And I go into the file cabinet and select invoices and see who they're billing and try. And, and it was not just doing 
the work of looking at it and seeing that it got authorized by the supervisor and then got stamp paid and there was a receiving order or whatever was required to audit. But I, I went further. I wanted to see, well, who is this person that's doing business as this company? And so I had a, I had a natural inquiry. Again, I see that in you, Michael, the same kind of curiosity. It's probably why you do these podcasts. And that is a way of me saying that 10 years later, I became a partner. I grew up in that firm uh, from a, a local kid to, after 10 years, probably a pretty sophisticated world person because I landed up working in Frankfurt. I worked in Tokyo. I worked in Berlin. I worked down at Cape Canaveral during the, the shots down there, you know, in, in you can think of that period in the late 60s when we're going to the moon. Um, so I, I spent two months a year for maybe four years at Cape uh, Canaveral, Cape Kennedy today, auditing the eastern test range. So as we were shooting all the tracking that went from Cape Canaveral over the Atlantic Ocean into Africa, you know, I was responsible for auditing all of that. So I got to know the engineers and it was wonderful. So 10 years later, you know, I'm a world person and I was a partner there for eight years and I had assigned accounts. I had CBS as a partner. I had done in Bradstreet and I was a junior partner on AT&T. And that connects to what you asked me earlier, right? I also, by the way, I was the partner on the, the Modern Art Museum in New York, New York Modern Art Museum and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I had the two art institutes in New York, as well as Columbia University. So I had three not-for-profits in addition to the corporate. So I was getting exposed to unbelievable stuff and unbelievable people. And uh, as a partner, you know, you go to board meetings, you know, you report into the board, particularly audit committee. So I was getting exposure to, you know, people who were leading our country at the time. Again, I'm not overemphasizing that. I'd be there for my hour or two, but I would carefully watch how they handled themselves, how they carried themselves, how they dealt with each other. When I was maybe 36, six years as a partner or something like that, the senior partner on the AT&T account, his name is Reed Colgrove. If you took a piece of granite, Michael, and said, I'm going to carve out of that granite what the ideal looking person would be to be a partner at PricewaterhouseCoopers that would have the biggest account in the firm, AT&T, it was Reed Colgrove. He was elegant, not only in visual, but how he carried himself. I named my son in his honor, Reed. So Reed was retiring. And so the firm, I, Pricewaterhouse, went around the country to their senior partners to see who they would have signed to the AT&T account. They were thinking of going, taking the guy who was running the Ford account or the Arco account or whatever, you know, and removing them to New York and having them be responsible for AT&T. The CFO of AT&T says to the managing partner, Price Waterhouse, well, what about that guy, Bob Kaffner, the junior partner? Why don't you have him be our senior partner? It never occurred to my firm, right? They they would have they. I think their thought was, well, that would be um, disrespectful, maybe, not offering up a fifty-five-year-old or something, right? 
And that's how I became the senior partner on AT&T, that the client asked me, no, is there a moral to that little element of the story? I think so, right? That I did my job in such a way that my client went out for me, right? They stepped, I don't know how to describe it, right? But the client said, no, that guy, he, move him up. We don't need one of your seasoned people. For those listening to this, there's nothing like performance. You know, you can have all the contacts in the world and contacts help and all that stuff helps, but make sure your performance is great. You and I, Michael, have talked about products, right? Make sure your product is great. Make sure that, you know, have great marketing programs, advertising programs, branding strategies, but make sure that you're selling something that is that the market really values and adds to their life, right? Same thing in your own career. Whatever you do in your career, you know, just be genuine, give it your best, be incredibly respectful of the others you work with. It comes back to you. And it came back to me in that case. That's that's incredible. It sounds like Reed must have been a, a great mentor to you. Yes, that's true. How did having a mentor like that inform you what great performance looked like and, and how did it help? Let's talk about writing. You write reports to your client. I'm not talking about the standard audit report that you take out of the word processor, but there's lots of, you know, you do work and you report on your work to your client. Rico wrote, could, he wrote beautifully. And when he had me do drafting, I, I wish I had some of my work product. It was probably a mess. In my college education, I, I didn't read a lot of the classics. I didn't have to write heavy term papers. I didn't do a thesis. You know, I'm a kid from Long Island. I, you know, wrote a love note to the gal sitting next to me. <laughs> and here, you know, I'm now drafting reports to our clients. He edited me. He would sit down with me, go over why he thought, not now thought, why I was writing incoherently. He forced me to do rewrites. His standards of excellence in everything we did was very high, never, and demanded it of himself, and forced me to want to, want to, not need to, want to rise to his standard. And when I, the occasions that I did, he acknowledged me. And that's how he mentored me. It was around the substance. It wasn't, let's go for a beer and I'll tell you the history of life. It wasn't anything like that. It was around the substance, Michael. But inside of that was a man who I think saw potential in me, raw potential. And I think he got joy in his life and developing that raw potential into something that is more refined. And so it was symbiotic. And you know, you know, I know in these podcasts you use, you, know, you focus on mentoring. Mentoring is symbiotic. It, it is a both way. I my life today is a, I that is who I am now. I am Ricolro, and and I get great pleasure out of it. He did too. I've got one other question for you. During that time, you mentioned having the opportunity to spend time with the folks that were leaving the country at the time and industry at the time. Were there 
dynamics that struck you that were consistent amongst the the best performers or the um, the leaders that uh, you were most impressed by uh, at the time that you can remember? I would say I was I went probably into my late forties being a student of I'm going to use the word elegant performance of others, and I was exposed to unbelievably wonderfully great leaders, mostly industry, but in some in, in government. True competence, I learned, it took me a while, is best blended with softness. That the best that I was around and observed were incredibly competent, incredibly accomplished, but were gentle, gentle men. Now, again, this is not, I was, I, this is a period where men were in, in dominant leadership positions. Women at this point were not. So I, that experience was men. But later when I see women in very senior positions, it, that gentleness is there too. That's a gentle woman. But gentle men really had meaning because I believe it comes from an inner self-confidence and a respect for others. And so that value to me, uh, you know, I think found its way inside of me is, you know, okay, I get that. And I try to be that way now that I'm on the other side and far on the other side of life, of the halfway mark in life. If you can get to the halfway mark and be a gentle person, confident and capable, humble, those are the qualities that I observed. And hopefully I do, at least I do my best to to embed them in my own life. What an incredible insight. Thank you. Would love to, to delve back into how did you go from being the senior partner on the AT&T account to actually joining the company? I had a personal life at the same time. I'm now in my late 30s, 38 or 9. I married my high school sweetheart. We had two children in my, by age 23. So I was way over my, and I had a house at age 24 with a mortgage and brackets in my checkbook because I, you know, towards the end of the month, you know, I would have to write a check and waiting for the cash to come in for my paycheck. So I was way over my head and the marriage couldn't hold together. You know, we were just, we just, we, it was hard. And so at the end of my 20s, we separated and divorced. And, and, as amicably as one can be. And we both raised our children together in a very collaborative way. She found, she found a guy for maybe three years later and married and terrific guy. I would marry him myself, kind of a guy. <laughs> but for my 30s, I stayed single because I think I needed to do as an individual what people normally do in their 20s. I didn't do that in my 20s. So I did my 20s and my 30s. So I, I was single. And I was at AT&T one day, and I finished my work about 3 o'clock. Instead of going back to the office of Bryce Waterhouse, I instead went to my ex-wife's house where my two daughters go to school to see them as they came back from school. So I'm at the house, and there was no cell phones at the time, and I may have had a pager, but I get a contact from my secretary saying, Charlie Brown is calling you. Now, Charlie Brown was chairman and CEO of the world's largest corporation called AT&T, a million employees. 
Charlie Brown never called me. I passed him. I sat in a board meeting, but I never had a word with him. I mean, my setup here is I didn't know him. Sure. I thought I was going to get fired. I just didn't know. <laughs> so I pick up the house phone in my ex-wife's house, dial the number, and I speak to Charlie Brown's secretary. And she said, oh, uh, Mr. Kavner, uh, Mr. Brown's looking to speak with you. Hold on. And so next minute, Charlie's on the phone. Bob, uh, thank you so much for returning my call. <laughs> Thanking me. I said, well, Charlie, I'm happy to return the call. I said, would you mind if I put you on hold? But I would like Bob Allen, the executive vice president, to join us. So a moment later, Bob Allen's in there. And, uh, I, say, and I knew Bob a little bit. Charlie says, Bob, um, our CFO, he names the name, will be retiring. And we would like to ask you if you would consider becoming the CFO of AT&T. Wow. And about that, Michael, around that moment, we all hear the three of us, the sound, beep, 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 uh, through the telephone. It turned out later, you know, a few minutes later, I figured out it was my daughter, Brenda. She picked up the extension in the house and without listening for a dial tone, in those days, you had to listen for a dial tone. She started dialing a friend. <laughs> and so those beeps were her hitting the buttons on her extension, not knowing I was in the... And so the unbelievable part of this story is Charlie. I hear Charlie <laughs> say to Bob Allen, what is that? Is that our 5E switch? No, and Bob Allen says, no, I think it may be the 4E switch uh, is interfering. He said, well, you know, that's a... And I'm saying, holy shit, what do I do now? <laughs> my daughter upstairs. <laughs> I, I put my hand over the speaker and I yell out, Brenda, put down the phone. <laughs> and she puts down the phone and I, I didn't have the guts to tell him it was Brenda on the phone. And so that little story kind of went. But they did ask me if I could come in and talk to them about being CFO of AT&T. I did. I went there. I, I was just so blown away, absolutely startled. That began my journey. I would tell you this, Michael. My partners at PricewaterhouseCoopers, uh, particularly the managing partner, the fellow who ran the global firm, he was so complimentary to me for getting this offer. There was no resentment. Don't take it. You know, Bob, this is an unbelievable. I think the firm felt proud that one of theirs at age 39 became the CFO of AT&T. Um, so that, you know, that there was a little, it was weird, right? When you leave a firm to leave another one, you normally get the hell out of here, pack your bags, and here's your security guard to work you out. It was the opposite. We had a party when I left the firm. At the time, Michael, you know, as a partner, again, this is 1984. And, um, yeah, I was earning probably $75,000, good money in those days. Uh, I had an apartment on 76th Street in Manhattan, nice apartment. So <laughs> Charlie has me speak to the head of HR. And the guy says to me, um, Bob, um, so uh, the CFO job uh, is benchmarked. I want to be honest with you. It's benchmarked at 
$500,000. But we're going to start you at three seventy. dollars Now, don't, you know, I know that's low. I know that's low, but we're going to move you right up to the to the median point of the salary range. Is it the Radcliffe method of salary ranges or something? And, you know, you can go beyond the 500. But, uh, and listen to me more. Don't get upset with the 370. I'm sitting there saying, 370. <laughs> <laughs> that goes on. So, um, but you'll be, uh, you, your bonus plan has you at 60% of the 370. So you could, you, you'll be over 500,000. But, you know, we, we don't set the targets through the roof. And you, you should clearly be over the 500. He's fixated that I need a half a million dollars and stuff. Uh, he said, now you're going to get stock options. And we're valuing the stock options for you at one and a half million dollars, you know, based on the, what is that, the Black-Scholes method of valuing stock options. He said, now, in your position, you'll have a driver. Uh, Freddie's going to be your driver. And where, wherever you need to go, you know, Freddie's going to take you. You know, you don't need to drive anymore. And the board does not want you flying commercial. Now, there's a problem with this, Bob. That you know, we have six Gulf Streams and four Falcon 50s. Your position really does call for a Gulf Stream, but we cannot give you the Gulf Stream because they're taken by some other executives. So you'll have to start off on the Falcon 50. Believe Michael, me. I didn't even know. <laughs> I didn't even know what a Gulf Stream. <laughs> I walked out of that. And that, that became my life in May 1 of, two, of 1984. I walked into that world. And we moved our headquarters from 550 Madison Avenue shortly after to our network center in Basking Ridge, Monster Center, gorgeous, in Basking Ridge, New Jersey. They helicoptered me from 59th Street at the foot of the 59th Street Bridge to Basking Ridge, Every morning and every afternoon, I flew back and I entered that world. And it was a world, you know, from, a, again, looking back at my background, you know, my dad saying to me, you know, 20 years or so before, do you want to go to college? You have to be an accountant to this world. It was an unbelievable journey, right? That's incredible. And I love the the moment. I mean, what a foundational moment to get the the call from from Charlie with surrounded by your daughters. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. I know the theme of your podcast here is adversity, but I may not qualify. I have you know, I've had failures and we'll talk about them. I had very little failures up to this time in my life that we're talking about, by the way. Pretty much you know, I had a marriage failure and that was painful. And I went to therapy and I learned a lot about my own bullshit, which I think became very helpful to me in grounding myself to be a better person in life. But for the most part, at, the, at this point in the story of my life, I, you know, I really didn't have much adversity. And so I, I'm not a highly qualified interviewee for you in that category <laughs> at this point. Well, I, I, I wouldn't be so sure. I think uh, you've, you've seen so much. I'd love to ask you, uh, if you don't mind, a little bit about the marriage and your career. I think there's this cliche almost of, of folks who work a lot or focus on their craft. And as a result, personal relationships can, can fall by the wayside. But I know you've since been happily married and, and have more kids there. How do you think about that work-life balance and being 
a leader in your field, in your organization, and giving that the right amount of, of effort and dedication to performance while also balancing your family commitments. Because I think that's something probably a lot of people struggle with. Right. Particularly when you don't have agency. You know, the simple example, your boss tell, you know, says to you, we got to get this project done. We're going to have to work the next several evenings and Saturday. You have to go home to your spouse and say, I have to work these next couple of evenings and Saturday. And, you know, that dinner we're supposed to have with so-and-so, we're going to have to cancel. And, you know, Saturday, you, you know how much I love going to see my in-laws, your parents, but we won't be able to do that. And so that's what I mean. Lack of agency is, you know, you're, you're caught between this bind of your commitments to your family life, in my example, and your career commitments that the job has independent variables in it. You're not in a job, you're in a career. And that's where I think the tension is for many of us. I think there, there may be spouses that get it and are flexible about it and say, okay, I'll, you know, this is part of what I signed up for. And of course, you got to work and do that. And I'll call Bill and Mary and tell them we're not having dinner with them. And you know, you never like my parents anyway, so we don't have to go do that. I have two spouses. Neither of them are those people. And so I've been in the first one, the marriage ended pretty much, but I didn't know how to negotiate that. I just, to me, you know, if Bree Colgar wanted me to rewrite that report, you know, I was going to spend till 11 o'clock and not get home till midnight to rewrite the report. It was, you know, I, I didn't have enough awareness to, to try to find middle grounds, right? But even, you know, later in, you know, when I married, I married again at, maybe, I think it was age 42, 43. So in my 40s, Particularly while I was still at AT and T in my forties, it was a ten- it was a tension between Allison and me. You know, we immediately had two one child, Reed, and then we had another child a few years later, Catherine, who you know. And so she's there with two kids. Now we got all the money in the world, right? I'm earning my three seventy plus my bonus plus my stock options. You know, plus the car at the front door. Um, but I think you know, if, if Allison was sitting next to me, you know, I think she would have said, you know, I don't need all that stuff. I'd rather have you at home. I knew that. And so that was a tension for me. And probably one of the reasons I didn't stay at AT&T was because I knew Allison wasn't happy with that way of life in, in raising a child and living this monster corporate life, raising children. So it's hard. All I could do, Michael, is acknowledge it's hard. And it takes a conversation between the two people, a continuous rebalancing. And it's part of the test of a marriage. Now, if you have total agency, meaning you're running your own business, the business kind of runs itself and you know, you're there, the Maytag repairman, fine tuning it. And you can you know, show up in the morning and then get a 10 o'clock tea time, come back at four in the afternoon to see that everything's all right. And, you know, the cash register is still full. You know, you probably don't have those problems. So I guess it depends on your career. One more question on that topic, and that's, were there things that you learned through your first process, your first uh, marriage and that dissolving that you applied to, to your second one to help, help through those tensions, help through that, that balancing when, uh, 
when the, the corporate demands were robust? Well, I'm going to answer it in a little, not direct way. So toward the end of the marriage where we were fighting, we went to couples therapy. The two of us went to the therapist together. And this was a psychotherapist. And uh, so we went together. And, you know, my goal was, you know, pretty much, you know, make sure that I'm there to help him fix her. You know, that, that I went in that with that. That was my mindset. You know, uh, you know, we need this help. We need this therapy because, you know, she needs a little to understand how to live in the life you know, that we're, we're in. And so he um, after one session, he said to the two of us, I think we should meet one on, you know, just separately, not together. We should. So I go to my session, you know, and she met with him before. Maybe, maybe on Wednesday and I'm there on Thursday. I said, how'd it go? You know, making progress <laughs> and putting up. I would say within 15, 20 minutes, I'm on the couch there crying about my relationship with my father who passed on when I was in my 20s. And I ended up spending the next two years and, you know, the marriage couldn't, he kind of figured out this marriage is not going to go. But I spent two years really understanding myself, a journey I believe you probably have done yourself. Continues today. And I continue today, Michael. But in those two years, you know, all that bullshit that was in my head of self-righteousness, of, you know, anything I touch, I could do well, of what I thought people were thinking of me and learning and really understanding, you know, the underbellies. And I, I mentioned to you about humbleness earlier. To me, the lesson, I was a lousy partner in that marriage. I was an idiot. Again, I my excuse is, that, well, I married at 21. What do you expect? But there was no way I was a good partner. I, I just was selfish. And not that I wanted to be selfish. I, I, I just didn't understand relationships and complexity of um, relationships and family. And unfortunately, I needed that that failure. And this is in the theme of your podcast here. That failure forced me to come to terms with my own vulnerabilities uh, and my own humanity. That created a foundation in my early 30s that I still try to build on. You went to AT&T from your accounting firm, from Price uh, Waterhouse, and You've now, if I've got this right, you, you go into a situation where you have 50,000 people roughly reporting to you. I mean, a massive... No, no. I, I was CFO for maybe three years. Okay. Uh, and I ran, so I had treasury, controllership, internal audit, uh, investor relations, you know, finance, all the traditional things a CFO would have. Uh, maybe a few other departments. I may have had facilities, which was monstrous. But then Bob Allen, who became CEO, said to me that the board, that he has recommended to the board and the board has agreed that I should be on a succession plan to run AT&T and that I need operating experience. So they took me out of the CFO role and made me president of the emerging computer business. And I'll just run more quickly, then we can come back. And then maybe two years after running the computer, it was about a billion dollars in revenue at the time. And then they moved me up to executive vice president for all of the digital businesses. So computers, 
um, all the networking gear that AT&T, we were a manufacturing business, a monster manufacturing business. It used to be called Western Electric. So all of the products that we sold to businesses, not the products that went into the network, our network, but business networks, um, and uh, as well as the consumer products, so from telephones to everything, all, all the things that we sold to consumers. So, uh, and then after that, they made me CEO of all of the data businesses, not only products, but the data services that are on the network. Um, so that was, you know, maybe seven years of my years at AT&T. In those latter of those seven years of the 10 that I was there, uh, I had around 40, 50,000 people reporting. The things that you learned your, about yourself in your late 30s, did those feed into your evolving outlook on management, dealing with people, how to get the how to get the most out of people? Did that sort of growth and self-awareness serve you as you went into that role? I think it was a foundation piece. I had other pieces missing. I was sent to Dartmouth for one of those advanced management programs because I never was educated in organizational dynamics, organizational behavior. I was not educated. I did not really know uh, other than what I learned uh, on the job, but I did. I never had real um, good academic grounding in manufacturing, human resources. So, you know, I took, I, that was very helpful too. I mean, formal education fits in here. And, you know, I was a bootstrapper and I had holes in my knowledge. Some of it I filled on the job learning, as I said earlier, as a sponge. But others, I benefited from more formal education. So I think, you know, getting particularly around organizational dynamics, I needed that foundation to run 40,000 person organization. It's complex. You sit on the top and, you know, you vibrate where it means nothing to you. You say something in a meeting. And all of a sudden, that thing vibrates for 40,000 people. No, I never intended that, right? So you have to learn, you know, those type of things. So, yes, I think my own personal development as well as, you know, my intellectual development had to be married at that point in time. And there's another part of me that surfaced that I didn't even know much about, which was my willingness to be on the edge my interest of being on the edge and being more entrepreneurial, that got developed in that period as well. And you were coming across uh, a number of entrepreneurs, I would imagine, in that role that uh, were shaping the, the modern technology scene. Yeah, well, yeah. So if you go back and into the late 80s, early 90s, I was considered a player in the computer industry, the emerging network computer industry, the word internet was may have been commercialized as a term around 1993 or four. I did the keynote address at the um, Consumer Electronics Show, I think in 92, about networking. But I, uh, at that point, uh, we moved up in my career. You know, I, at the point, I was on the board you know, of Philips Electronics. I was on the board of Sun Microsystems. I was on the board of um, another, you know, big computer company and uh, Duracell and Bank of America. 
So you know, I was wow. living in this world, and and because of the role I played in AT and T, I, you know, I was in constant contact with people leading other large companies. You know that who you you know people that you you know of in the industry. So trying to keep up, you know, with them, and a good part of Bell Labs was reporting to me too. So Bell Labs had three thousand PhDs. All right, that's going to do it for part one of my discussion with Bob. Please join me next time for part two and the fascinating conclusion of our conversation together. Bob shares so much more about his involvement with some of the most foundational tech and multimedia companies of our time and working with luminaries like Bill Gates, Sky Dayton, Michael Ovitz, Bill Gross. Join us next time. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of What Didn't Kill You. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe, and review. You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you at whatdidn'tkillyou.com. And you can follow along at what didn't kill you on Instagram. I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path. And I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.